Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. Today, our journey through the first epistle of John continues as we approach the closing weeks of the Easter season. Less of a letter and more of a theological treatise, this beloved epistle, written somewhere between 90 and 100 CE, delivers words of encouragement and practical instruction to a community of churches embroiled with conflict and division. While the author draws clear boundaries between truth and false teachings, the focus of 1 John rests solely on encouraging the faithful to remember their identity and calling to love as Christ has loved them. The love of God in Christ moves beyond simplistic, sentimental platitudes. It is a full and complete love, a divine love, revealed once and for all in the person of Christ. A love that brings all humanity into life itself. Yet, as we shall hear today, such a love carries an inescapable obligation. We do not simply contemplate or receive the love of Christ. We are, above all, conscripted by it. Such love, as revealed by Christ, means also imitation. As the author will remind his listeners, only by living in such love as that of Christ can we know from the inside the new life Christ has given to all of us. Let us turn now and continue our reading of 1 John and this incredible love that the author describes. Today's reading is from John chapter 3, verses 16 through 24 from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God, and we receive from him whatever we ask, because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit that he has given us. To whom do you belong? Where in the world do you belong? At this very moment, as I record this message, a 20-ton rocket body is hurtling uncontrolled and unclaimed above Earth's atmosphere at 18,000 miles an hour. Sometime this weekend, it's expected to 
finally enter our atmosphere and fall to Earth. But not even our best rocket scientists can predict when or where. On April 28th, this same rocket body belonged to the Chinese government, launching the core module of China's space station into orbit. But having completed its mission and detaching from its cargo, it now belongs to no one in particular and has no place in particular to go. It just wanders aimlessly alone through space and time. Where it will land and when it will land, nobody knows. But one thing we do know for sure is that nobody wants to be anywhere near it when it finally does land. I read this week that there are actually thousands of rocket bodies flying in Earth's orbit. Every one of them, uncontrolled and unclaimed, tumbling through time and space, discarded, detached, unwanted, and unwelcome. As I imagine all those floating bodies drifting aimlessly through space, I wonder if that image might be a metaphor for modern life here on Earth. All the countless, lonely, isolated, disconnected people in the world just floating through time and space, belonging to no one and no place. Outsiders longing for a way in. The Eleanor Rigby's, the Father Mackenzie's, and all the lonely people, as they say, where, where do they all belong? Where do you belong? To whom do you belong? Finding a sense of belonging is hard, because people are hard. But what's harder than finding that sense of belonging is keeping that sense of belonging. Because as you may have noticed from time to time, people do people things. They say and do things accidentally and often even deliberately that hurt. Sometimes they pick a fight over the most trivial matters. Sometimes they judge or scapegoat when they don't want to deal with their own personal demons or shortcomings. Sometimes they look around at the people they do belong to and they think maybe they can do better. And so they leave. Belonging is hard because People are hard. But even still, there is simply no denying the fact that we can't live very long without a team of people who cheer us on and hold us accountable to our highest ideals, even when those same people push us to the limits of our love. The New Testament letter called 1 John reminds us of the burdens and blessings of belonging. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, 1 John offers a message about how imperfect people find and keep belonging by practicing the, the power of God's perfect love. This perfect love, as we have seen, is, is, is not motivated by self-love or personal interest. It's not the golden rule kind of love. And there's nothing wrong with the golden rule kind of love. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. This kind of love is a good place to start. It can solve a lot of problems in the world. If only we practice the golden rule a little more, we'd probably hate a whole lot less. We would be a lot more accepting of those who seem, at least on the outside, to be different than us. The Muslim, the transgender, the refugee, the unsheltered. The golden rule says, put yourself in the shoes of the other 
and walk around for a day. How would you want to be treated? The golden rule love is beautiful love. But still, it's not perfect love. Because it still tends to be a subjective, self-referenced love. It only knows how to love according to our own human lived experience, which, as we know, is imperfect and incomplete. We humans, we just don't always love ourselves very well. We're often pretty hard on ourselves. We don't always have grace for ourselves. So if we love our neighbors with that same love with which we love ourselves, we probably won't love completely or perfectly. In fact, we might even do harm from time to time. But perfect love is different. Perfect love says, don't put yourself in the shoes of your neighbor. Put yourself instead in the shoes of Jesus. And let those shoes take you where Jesus walked and to those whom Jesus walked. And ask yourself, is there any length to which Jesus wouldn't go to help someone? Is there anyone at all to whom Jesus wouldn't go? This is perfect love of God was embodied in the life of Jesus. And John says it ought to inform and guide how we are to relate to one another. By practicing this perfect love, John says that we'll actually start to become more and more like Jesus. It doesn't happen all at once, and sometimes it involves a lot of trial and error and grace, but every day we get out of bed, we put on those Jesus shoes, and we ask ourselves, how am I going to practice this perfect love in the world today? Is today the day? that I'll become a little more like Jesus. And suddenly love becomes more than an abstraction. Suddenly it requires us to leave the warm and fuzzy and enter the world of the nitty-gritty. That takes courage. It's hard. The husband and wife were giving each other the silent treatment one day. It had gone on all day. The husband was preparing to leave the following morning for this important business trip. He'd need to wake up at 5 a.m. to make his flight, and he wanted his wife to make sure he didn't oversleep. But of course, he didn't want to break the silence. So before he went to bed, he wrote her a little note which read, when the alarm goes off, wake me up. But when he woke up the following morning, it was already 6 a.m., he'd miss his flight. Why didn't she wake me up? As he threw back the covers, there it was, a little note, which read, it's 5 a.m., Wake up. What is perfect love? What does it look like? How do we know if we're practicing or receiving the perfect love of God? John the Elder tells us plainly what this perfect love looks like today. He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. So perfect love is to lay down our lives for each other, says John. But doesn't that sound a bit extreme, actually laying down our lives for someone? Several years ago, you might remember the film Gran Torino. It portrayed the salty, cantankerous character of Walt Kowalski, played by Clint Eastwood. 
in the film, Kowalski is this retired auto worker and Korean War veteran who's grieving the death of his wife. He's angry, bigoted. He clings to a bygone world. His apple pie blue-collar neighborhood in the Detroit suburbs has been lost to crime and a wave of poor Asian immigrants. And Kowalski resembles the vintage 1972 Grand Torino that's parked in his garage, a relic of an old world, isolated and lonely. When a Hmong family from Laos moves in next door, Kowalski becomes outrageously racist. He rejects the family's tender, repeated efforts to befriend him. But eventually, the young girl and her brother break through, and this improbable friendship is formed. In spite of himself, Kowalski comes out of his emotional bunker and becomes a mentor, even a father figure to them, protecting them from the harsh realities of their neighborhood. Near the end of that film, a a gang attempts to recruit the young boy, and when he refuses, the gang members brutally assault his sister. And this is when you would expect Kowalski to go full-scale Dirty Harry on those gang members. But there's no go-ahead-make-my-day kind of moment in this Eastwood film. Instead, and this is the spoil alert, Kowalski drives to the house where the gang members are gathered. and He calls them to come out. Assuming he's come to exact revenge, they aim their guns at Kowalski, and when Kowalski reaches into his jacket pocket, they unleash this hail of bullets. And Kowalski, the once bitter and bigoted old man who has come to love his Hmong neighbors, is killed. And as the camera pans out, Kowalski lays in the street, cruciform, arms outstretched as if on a cross. He holds in his hand, not a gun, as they had presumed, but a cigarette lighter. And as the gang members are arrested, we learn that this was Kowalski's plan all along, to save those he had come to love by giving his own life on their behalf. It's a dramatic ending. Walt Kowalski, the once bigoted, angry racist, turned Christ figure, literally laying down his life for his friends. But I think we make a great mistake if we equate perfect love only with sacrifice to the point of death. In fact, Kowalski's simple but intentional gestures of generosity and kindness that happen throughout the film are really the the true acts of laying down his life. And that is what John the Elder is really trying to teach those early Christians who first read this letter. They were living in Ephesus at around the turn of the first century when this letter arrived. And historians point out that there was no evidence of Christian persecution in Ephesus at that time. No one's life was really on the line. No one would have felt compelled or called to literally die for a member of their community. Ephesus was a sprawling metropolis. It was filled with all kinds of diverse people. Christians were never under threat in Ephesus, at least not like they were in other parts of the Roman Empire. 
All of which means that John the Elder, in saying that we ought to lay down our lives for another, he had something else in mind, something far less dramatic than dying for others, but equally as powerful. In our passage today, John tells us that laying down our lives for one another in perfect love is expressed in two very distinct ways. The first, he says, is to see and feel. Among the tribes in northern Natal in South Africa, the people there greet each other with the phrase Sawu Bona, which Westerners might assume simply means hello. But the phrase Sawu Bona literally means I see you. And if you're a member of the tribe, you will invariably reply to that greeting by saying Sikona, which means I am here. I see you. I am here. The order of this greeting among the tribal peoples is crucial because what it's saying is, until you see me, I'm not here. When you see me, you bring me into existence. I see you. You are a real person. You matter to me. John, the elder in our passage today, puts it this way. If someone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but refuses to help, how can the love of God dwell in a person like that? To lay down our lives for one another is not simply to look, but to see. And in seeing, to feel. And in feeling, to act. To look, but not to feel. It's translated in our passage today as to refuse to help. But here, once again, this familiar Greek word appears. The word you've heard me preach about so many times before. The word is splankna. It means the inward parts of the body, like the intestines, the gut, even the heart. In the ancient world, the splankna was understood as the seat of human emotion. That place inside of you that is deeply moved emotionally, even physically, by what you see or witness. Have you ever felt butterflies in your stomach when you're nervous? Have you ever felt your stomach turn by witnessing some act of cruelty? When you saw the video footage of George Floyd's murder, all eight minutes and 46 seconds of it, did your stomach turn and your heart ache like mine? When you look at the world, what is it that you see? And when you see, what is it that you feel? To lay down one's life, says John, is to open your heart to feel the need, and in feeling the need, to act to meet that need according to your own ability. The late Jesuit writer Anthony DeMello says it this way, if you ever allow yourself to see, it will be the death of you. And that is why love is so terrifying. For to love is to see, and to see is to die. But it is the most delightful 
exhilarating experience in the whole world. For in the death of the ego is freedom and peace, serenity and joy. To see what you see is the gateway to practicing perfect love and finding true freedom in your life. Years ago, a friend of mine was walking along the pier in Oceanside, California. It was late fall. The air was crisp and cool. He'd met a friend for dinner, and after dinner, they were walking along the pier when, unexpectedly, they were interrupted by a shirtless, shoeless stranger whose wind-burned face and long, tangled hair signaled that he was a drifter. Excuse me, said the man. I, I don't mean to bother you, but can you help me out? My friend pulled a handful of spare change from his pocket. That's all I've got, he said. But the stranger said, look, someone stole my shirt and shoes today. It's going to be a cool night. Then he pointed to my friend's companion. And he said to him, that's a nice jacket. It looks warm. Can I have it? This jacket was brand new. It was a birthday gift from his wife. My friend looked at his friend, and then the three of them stared at each other for a moment. It was an odd and bold request. But finally, the friend removed his jacket and handed it to that stranger, and the stranger walked away with the jacket. And when he did so, my friend looked at his friend and said, why did you just give a complete stranger your brand new jacket. Where would you get a crazy idea like that? His friend thought for a moment, and he said one word, Jesus. To lay down your life means to feel what you see and in feeling to act in some way, in some way that says, I see you. You are here. You exist. But to lay down our lives for one another means one more thing, according to John. It means to live out what we say. You can say it in a million different ways. Practice what you preach, walk the talk. But John simply puts it this way. Let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. The truth is there will be days when we look but we do not see and do not feel and do not think to act with love toward one another. Maybe it's because we're in a hurry or because we're distracted by something that seems so much more important or because we're even annoyed or hurt or put off by the other. But John reminds us that to be a Christian means that the perfect love of God is fulfilled when our words translate into action, whether it feels good or not. And he warns us that in the church there are too many experts with answers and simply not enough practitioners. I remember when Lori and I were pregnant with our first child. Lori brought home that go-to manual for pregnancy, uh, what to expect when you're expecting. Secretly, I studied this book from cover to cover. I, I learned everything there is to know about prenatal development, natural birth versus cesarean, the difference between 
false labor and real labor. I, I don't want to brag, but I, um, I could have aced any written test on pregnancy and childbirth. But when the big day came and Lori said it's time, I absolutely lost my mind. I, I think my own water broke. I could barely breathe through the contractions. And if Lori wasn't there to walk me through it, I honestly don't know what I would have done. We don't need more experts on love in the world. What we need are people who promise to show up for one another and to act, even when they don't feel like it. Will Willimon is a bishop in the United Methodist Church. He recalls a moment in his early pastoral ministry when on his way out of the church one afternoon, a rather forlorn-looking man with a small bag approached him. This was obviously a wanderer, a drifter, coming to the church looking for a handout. These drifters would come through his church about twice a week, looking for a tank of gas for the trip, a meal, a gift, preferably in cash. They always would have some sad story of woe to tell, but in the end, it was always the same. Can you spare some cash? So Willimon sighed as he watched this man approach. It had been a long day. In fact, he had a meeting to return to at the church that night, so he was anxious to get home. He met the man at the door. What can I, what can I do for you? He asked with some annoyance in his voice. Well, I wondered if you might be able to help a fellow on his way south, he said. I was headed down to, uh, well, well, look, I'm in a bit of a rush, said Willimon. Here's all I got, five and a ten, that's, that's all I've got. The man took the money, and he looked at it. Without a word, he turned and headed out toward the street. When he stopped, he turned back toward Willimon. And he said, I guess you think I'm supposed to thank you. He said this with a surprising tone of defiance. Well, said Wilmana, now that you mention it, a little gratitude wouldn't hurt. Well, said the man, I'm, I'm not going to thank you. You want to know why? Because you're a Christian. You don't help me because you want to. You have to help me because Jesus told you to help me. And the man laughed. Willimon said that he was stunned, even angry, the nerve of these people. But on his drive home, it finally occurred to him. That man was absolutely right. Our takeaways for today, put yourself in Jesus' shoes and let them take you where Jesus walked. Look and see, and in seeing, feel, and in feeling, act with perfect love. And in those moments when you don't feel like laying down your life for another, remember to practice what you preach.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.